Amen. Well, church, this past week I read a quote by Greg Laurie. He's one of the most prominent evangelists in our nation. And he said these words, quote, So here is what it comes down to. The ultimate choice in life is between pleasing ourselves and pleasing God. Would you agree with that statement? I know I would. We have a constant choice in front of us to please ourselves or to please God. Now, it's not that those choices are always mutually exclusive. There are times when pleasing ourselves can be a way of also pleasing God as we're grateful for the things he's given to us in our lives. But I think the point he's trying to get at is that, uh, that our lives are governed by kind of a driving motivation. Is it to please ourselves or is it to please God? Now, I believe that um, it is in the heart of every Christian to want to please God, right? If you know God, you do want to, to, to praise Him. You, you want to bring honor and glory to Him and live a life that is filled with gratitude for the things He's done for you. We want to please God, but we also know that it's not that easy sometimes, right? Would you admit that? We know that the Bible teaches that we have a sinful nature that is fixated, right, on pleasing ourselves at great cost sometimes. We want to please ourselves. We live in a society that is incredibly individualistic and incredibly focused on promoting your personal choice and your personal fulfillment. That's what matters most, right? Think of the old Burger King slogan, have it your way, right? For 40 years, that was their slogan. And that's how a lot of us are bombarded every day. We want you to live your life and be happy to the fullest because it is all about who? You. And as we discussed last week, pleasing God might draw persecution from those who differ from your beliefs. So that's why I think it is imperative for Christians to resolve to live lives that please God regardless of your circumstances, how difficult they might be, or regardless of the consequences you might face for seeking to please God. The famous British pastor J.C. Ryle said, quote, A zealous man in religion is preeminently a man of one thing. He sees one thing. He cares for one thing. He lives for one thing. He is swallowed up in one thing, and that one thing is to please God. Whether he lives or whether he dies, whether he has health or whether he has sickness, whether he is rich or whether he is poor, whether he pleases man or whether he gives offense, whether he is thought wise or whether he is thought foolish, whether he gets blame or whether he gets praise, whether he gets honor or whether he gets shame. For all this, the zealous man cares nothing at all. He burns for one thing, and that one thing is to please God and to advance God's glory. That is a great statement about a heart that wants to please God. So as we continue our series this morning on 1 Thessalonians, the theme of our passage this week and next is pleasing God. And it's my prayer that God will deepen the heart of each person here this morning to live that way that our desire would be to please God regardless of your circumstances and regardless of the consequences. So let me invite you to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And as you're turning there, uh, just a reminder that we're kind of changing gears here. In Paul's letters, 
he often will have two parts. In the first part of his letter, he, he will, uh, uh, in his letter, he'll lay out a bunch of theology, right? And then he moves to application. He, he goes from talking about who God is and what he's done for us to talking about what we should now do for God. He moves from doctrine to duty, from beliefs to behavior, from the indicative to the imperative, okay? So he does the same thing here in Thessalonians. Remember at the end of chapter 3, he kind of was wrapping up his theology section. And he mentioned that he wanted to complete what was lacking in their faith. Paul's associate Timothy had returned from visiting them and had brought back a report to Paul about how they were doing. And there were a lot of good things that were going on, right? In the church of Thessalonica, it was a good church. But Timothy also reported that there were some things that were lacking in your faith, some areas that needed growth. And so as Paul now moves to practical application, he pinpoints two areas that he wants them to grow in order to please God more. Sexual purity and loving one another. Sexual purity and then loving one another in the body of Christ. But first I want us to read verses 1 and 2 as Paul gives this overarching point, this overarching emphasis about pleasing God. Everybody with me? Page 987. Everybody there? All right, smaller crowd, you got to be lively here this morning, okay? Page 987, verses 1 and 2. This is his main kind of overarching point. goes all the way covering to uh, verse 12. He says, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. So Paul begins by saying those word, that word, finally. You might wonder why he says that when he's still got two chapters left. <laughs> Maybe he's like some preachers, you know, who say, in closing, and then they got 20 more minutes left to talk. Well, I think when Paul says finally, it's not that he's just about to finish, but he's now moving to the application part of his letter, right? And he urges them to remember what he instructed them when he was with them. He said, I instructed you how to walk and to please God. Remember, we talked about that. That's come up already, that metaphor of walking. It's your lifestyle. It's how you live your Christian lifestyle. You walk around all day, right? And so your lifestyle is your conduct, how you carry yourself as a Christian. Paul liked that metaphor. He used it 32 times in his letters. So the Christian life is how we live, not just what we believe, right? There we go. I like that. Thank you, Mr. Eckman. So what was their lifestyle, their conduct? What was it supposed to look like? Well, he says they were to please God. Did you get that? They were to please God. Now, that's, that phrase there is not just a generic statement. That was used in the Old Testament quite frequently to talk about the goal of human conduct was to please God. Psalm 147, verse 10 to 11 says, His delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of a man. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him and those who hope in his steadfast love. 
in the New Testament. Paul, again, he likes this phrase too, pleasing God. He uses it a lot in his writings. Talks about how this is true godly behavior when you seek to please God, not yourself. 2 Corinthians 5.9 says, so whether we are at home or away, speaking about being in the presence of the Lord or here on this earth, we make it our aim to please Him. Friends, this exhortation is vital. As Christians, we are called to be different. We're called to be different from the world. We should reflect the character and the commandments of our God. We should please Him. Now, this is important. The Thessalonians were already doing this. But Paul wants them to do this more and more. Right? Now, I mentioned this last week, but it's really worth camping out for just a moment here. How Paul models how to give exhortation. This is really key. First, he encourages them, and then he exhorts them. He encourages them, and then he exhorts them. I believe that if we would only practice this principle... In our own communications, that the amount of tension and stress and breakup that we have in our homes and in our workplaces and our friendships and yes, also in the church would greatly diminish. But what happens? We get in a situation and we skip the exhortation part and we go right to the exhortation, don't we? You should be doing this. You never do this the right way. And we go right to the exhortation. I cringe thinking about how many times I have gone right to exhortation in my life. You know why it's foolish? Let me give you some reasons. When we do that, we neglect what God is doing in other people's lives. God is at work around us, but we forget that and skip over that, and we go right to the exhortation. We're robbing God of His glory. Not only that, we're missing the opportunity to actually make a difference in that person's life, to strengthen them. Because we we speak in a spirit of anger, we minimize that person actually listening to us, right? Because we go right to the exhortation, the walls go up, and they're going to bounce that word of exhortation right back into your face because they're mad back at you. So let me give you an example. Your child brings home some poor grades because they haven't really been working that hard. We go right to the exhortation, don't we? You need to study harder. And then we often will mix in a few other statements as well. You're lazy. Your brother or sister works a lot harder than you. Other things that contribute absolutely nothing to them actually growing, right? But it makes us feel better to say it, right? It does. That's why we say it. How about we try this instead? How about we encourage and then exhort? I know that you can do this. Remember how you did well last year with this subject? Or your teacher is firmly convinced you can do this. 
if you would apply yourself, you need to study harder. Do you see the difference? Do you see how Paul models this? So let's think about this the next time we have that conversation with our spouse or our coworker or our boss or the person in church that we're frustrated with. Are there, is there something that we can say of an encouraging note, not just to butter them up, but to give glory to God about what he's doing in their lives so that then they will also be receptive to growing further in their faith? Makes such a difference. Let us encourage and then exhort as Paul models for us. Now, the first area that he urges them to please God more is sexual purity. Paul wants them to grow in personal holiness in general. Okay, we'll we'll track how he then goes to sexual purity. But he wants them to grow in holiness in general. Remember how he included this in his closing prayer in chapter 3, verses 12 to 13. Look up there, there with me, if you will. Paul prayed, May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, that, listen to this, that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So Paul was praying for them that they would be growing in holiness. So in verse 3 he writes, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is God's will for you, your sanctification. People often will wonder, what is God's will for my life? Right? When it comes to who you should marry, where you should live, what kind of job you should have, and so forth. In my opinion, this is just my opinion, I don't know that Scripture teaches us that God always explicitly reveals those details about our lives. He might sometimes, but a lot of times we have to pray about it, seek wisdom, we might have a list of pros and cons, and do the best we can with what we've been given. We don't always know those things explicitly clear. But here is something that is explicitly clear. God's will for your life, he says, is your sanctification. You say, well, what does that mean? It means your devotion to God. Sanctification means your devotion to God. Remember we talked about about the holiness of God. It means that you are devoted to God The result being that you will separate from sin, right? God wants his people to be sanctified, godly, holy. 1 Peter 1, 14 to 16 says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Friends, your character matters immensely to God. And indeed, God chose us before the foundation of the world that you would be holy. Ephesians 1, 3 to 4 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Why? That we should be holy and blameless before him. So God chose us to be holy. Now, there's more to God's will for our lives than just holiness, but holiness is an essential part of God's will for our lives. Next, then, Paul elaborates on God's will for our lives by giving three three exhortations. Three exhortations with their sanctification, and all of them focus specifically on sexual purity. God desires 
for his people to live according to his will regarding sexual purity. It matters greatly to God. Friends, despite what we might see and hear in our cultural culture, sexual activity matters greatly to God. It is not just a bodily activity, but it is something that matters to God because it's part of who we are as people and it affects you and your relationship to God. Now to clarify, Scripture is emphatically clear that God is not against sex. He is the author of sex. He desires people to enjoy sex, but he wants it practiced according to his design and purpose. Not just to satisfy our desires. So our sanctification is greatly affected by our sexual purity. And Paul knows the importance of sexual purity in the Christian life. And apparently this was lacking in the church of Thessalonica And so when the pages turned to get down to practical matters that they needed to deal with, this was the first item on his list. Now before looking at the three exhortations about sexual purity, I want to give a little bit of cultural background of the Roman Empire because you need to know the challenges that the church was facing as well as how this applies directly to our day and age. You know, sexual immorality, we would all recognize, has increased a lot since the sexual revolution of the 1960s, right? Has increased a lot. But in my opinion, what we see now in our culture was not as bad as what was going on in this ancient culture. Let me explain. In the Roman Empire... Marriages were typically arranged for social and economic benefits, not for personal affection. Grooms were typically in their mid-twenties. Brides were barely in their teens. It was widely understood and expected that the husband would not be sexually faithful to his wife. And so there were a variety of socially acceptable avenues for men to pursue sex outside of marriage. Men would have mistresses, particularly from lower social classes. Also, prostitution was rampant. It was not illegal as it is in our country, but was an established business practice. Slavery was widespread in this culture. Estimates range from one quarter to one third of the total population was comprised of slaves. And so men had relations with slaves, either slaves they personally own or slaves that were kept at businesses like uh, cookhouses and inns. They were kept there basically for the satisfaction of male customers. Homosexuality was very common with male prostitutes and slaves, very often young boys. So overall, men engaged in a wide variety of different Forms of sexual relations outside of marriage, single men did as well. And again, this was the accepted mindset of the culture. Let me give you a quote from the famous Roman politician Cicero. He says, quote, If anyone thinks that young men should be forbidden to have affairs, even with prostitutes, he is very strict indeed. 
For his view is contradictory not only to the law of the present age, but even with the habits of our ancestors and with what they used to consider allowable. For when was this not a common practice? When was it blamed? When was it forbidden? When, in fact, did that which was lawful become that which was not lawful? End quote. Now, there were some in the Roman Empire who argued for kind of a greater marital fidelity. But they were a minority, a small minority. So therefore, you have the famous uh, Greek philosopher Plutarch. He gave advice to future wives that it was best for them to ignore their husbands' adulteries rather than to complain about them and jeopardize their relationship. And yes, wives were basically kept there to have children and were expected to be generally faithful to their husband despite his infidelities. Now, you might think that religion would be the one place for purity in this culture. Sadly, sexual morality was part of their worship practices. In many of the pagan temples, prostitution was part of the temple practices themselves. In Thessalonica, Dionysus, he was, ever heard of him? He was the famous Greek god of wine and fertility. He was very popular as a deity there in Thessalonica. And as part of their festivals in honoring of Dionysus, they would have great processions where people would walk around and they would hold statues and images of Dionysus and they would go through the streets and they would be singing and dancing to the sounds of you know flutes and drums and so forth. And drunkenness and sexual immorality was a fixture of these religious festivals. Those were the religious festivals. So because of this prevalence of sexual morality in the Roman Empire, Paul discusses this topic with other churches like Ephesus and Colossae and Corinth, and particularly those who were coming from these Gentile backgrounds into the church. Not really so much to focus on the Jewish Christians, but the Gentile Christians who were coming from this background and struggled with sexual purity. And here in Thessalonica, sexual purity, again, was the first problem that Paul addressed. So with that said, he gives three exhortations elaborating on their sanctification. Again, all of them dealing with sexual purity. First, he says we are to abstain from sexual purity. In verse 3, notice again, he says, For this is the will of God for you, your sanctification, here it is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Now, that phrase sexual immorality is actually just one word in the Greek, porneia, porneia. It's the word we get in our English language, pornographic, right? Pornographic. That word refers to sexual activity, any sexual activity outside of heterosexual marriage. God designed sexual activity to to occur within that structure. So to abstain from sexual immorality means that we should abstain from the following practices. And yes, I want to point them out specifically because sometimes people have honest questions about what does the Bible teach in regards to sexual purity? And then there's sometimes, I think, folks who kind of know what the Bible teaches, but they don't really want to know because then it might you know, clarify what they're supposed to do and live. So we need to know God's will for our lives. So Christians are to abstain from adultery. 
Meaning once you are married, we are to abstain from sexual relations outside of that marriage. Christians are to abstain from premarital sexual activity. Sexual activity, including intercourse and all other forms of sexual activity. The mindset of the Christian isn't, how far can I go and still stay within God's pleasure, but how can I live a holy life and not be engaged in the things of the world? This one is a real challenge today because our culture still kind of frowns upon adultery, but has changed radically its view of premarital sex. 69%, according to Gallup, approve of premarital sex, gone up from uh, 2001 where it was 53%. The culture has shifted pretty dramatically on this. I'm imagining those who are a little bit older would remember a different time and age, right? But Scripture still speaks clearly on this issue, doesn't it? There's more. Christians are to abstain from watching sexual activity. Watching it. Whether it's pornography, magazines, movies, and TV shows that may not be technically labeled pornographic in our culture, but contain vivid scenes. And I'm sorry, but I don't agree with Christians who say that it's fine to watch such things as long as it does not affect them. My response would be, of course it affects you. Of course it affects you. Especially if you are a man. And regardless, Scripture is clear about sexual morality, not just with our bodies, but in our minds as well. Matthew 5, 27-28, Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, you should not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus was confronting the Jewish leaders of his time who argued that adultery was not permissible, but it was okay as long as you thought about those things. It's okay what goes on in your mind. Jesus says, no, what goes on in your heart matters just as much to God. Now, just as a footnote to this, I feel like I need to say it. All of these restrictions, I know, sound stifling to our culture. And I'm sure to that culture back then where it was a free-for-all, right? But it is important to remember that God's ways are the best ways. He knows what He's doing. He knows what is right. And it is no accident when they actually sit down and do research, they realize that those who have the most fulfilling sexual lives are those who are married, not singles, not people who are cohabiting together. We don't get that in our culture, right? What you get in our culture is you get married, there it goes. There goes your sex life. But that's not what the research shows. Because God's ways are the best ways. They're not the easiest ways sometimes, but they're the best ways. We live in a fallen world, so nothing will be easy. So we are to abstain from sexual immorality. Verse 4, Paul gives a second exhortation to pursue sexual purity. He says we are to control our own bodies. He says, quote, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. 
So Paul, just to be clear, he's writing to a church that's predominantly Gentile. He's not knocking Gentiles per se, because some of them were, a lot of them were Gentiles. But what he is saying is that these Gentiles, by and large, they did not know God. They knew God existed, but they did not know him personally. And these Gentiles in this culture were running around because they did not know God and living and pursuing all of these different sexual avenues. They were driven by lust. But Paul says Christians are to do the opposite. We are to control our own bodies. Sexual temptation can be an overpowering temptation. But did you notice that Paul doesn't excuse it? He doesn't say, man, guys, I know you're surrounded by this stuff. I know it's hard, so it's okay sometimes. It's okay because I know there's people in the church that are doing that. It's okay. He doesn't say that, does he? Rather, he gives them that, that exhortation that they can control themselves. They're not slaves of sin. The power of sin has been broken. They're no longer under that slavery of sin. But what they need to do is gain mastery over their bodies. And by God's grace, it can happen. But it takes resolve. Remember Jesus' teaching, Mark 9, about if you're dealing with temptation, what do you have to do? Do you play around with it? No. You cut out your eyeballs and you cut off your hands. You can take a deep breath. He's just using hyperbole here. Not literally, but he is getting across a point, isn't he? That we're to take it seriously, to cut off the sources of temptation. And that puts us in a predicament and a a spot of saying, are we willing to take this seriously? Maybe you're in a situation where you're in a relationship that is leading somewhere that you know it shouldn't go. Are you willing to cut off that relationship? Maybe you're struggling with watching things on your electronic devices. Are you willing to put on some super strict filters that will control that to enlist some people in accountability? Or maybe just take that thing and throw it in the trash can if it's causing you to stumble. Are you willing to do that? That's how we take control of our bodies. And then Paul gives a third exhortation of pursuing sexual purity. We are to avoid wronging fellow Christians. He says in verse 6 that no one transgressed and wronged his brother in this matter. It's interesting that word wrong, it was used to refer to defrauding or cheating somebody. We just said there's a lot of sexual morality going on in this culture, but apparently it now was seeping into the church and there are relationships that were occurring in the Thessalonian church that were wrong, even amongst the church members there. And so Paul says, look, when this is happening, you're wronging your brother or your sister because you're being involved in something that isn't yours. We all know what that will do to a church. Devastate a church. Devastate its unity. Devastate its holiness. As well as everybody in the church or in the community will now know what is going on at that church and mock 
and snicker. Next, Paul moves from giving three exhortations about sexual purity to three reasons for sexual purity. I'm going to pick up there next week. Now, in closing... (laughs) 20 minutes? I got 20 minutes? No, no, no. I'll be quick. Let me just make two points real quick. First is just kind of a big picture. I want us to appreciate the radical transformation that Christianity brought to the ancient world. This wasn't just the Roman culture. This is going back to the Greek culture before. This was literally the sexual ethic, the sexual moral ethic for about a thousand years. When we heard and listened to some of those things earlier, didn't it sound harsh and demeaning? You know why that is? Because Christianity transformed things so much. Christianity elevated the status of women, marriage, children, and family. And eventually, through the influence of of Christianity, slavery died out, which was a major source of sexual immorality. And also, kind of as 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 a footnote to all this, You can only imagine in the midst of this rampant sexual morality, there were incredible amounts of unwanted pregnancies. And we know that in the Roman Empire, they would often leave babies out, particularly baby girls, out in the woods and out in the garbage dumps to die. Christians opposed this practice and would take in those unwanted children. And eventually, it was a Roman emperor, a Christian emperor, who outlawed that practice that had gone on for centuries. More could be said, but I just hope you understand a little bit about what trans- how Christianity transformed things. And maybe you have a response the next time you hear how Christianity has been so harmful to the cause of women in the world. Or how it has shackled people's freedoms, sexual freedoms. Remember how things used to be. And remember, with a decreasing Christian influence in our culture, where things might be progressing in the future. Do we want to go back there? Second, God, I want want you to hear this point. God forgives all sexual immorality. It is not the unpardonable sin. Let us not think that when we have fallen into temptation, either before we came to know Christ or even after coming to know Christ, that God is somehow done with you. God forgives. He forgives. Please hear that. Do not drown in guilt. Christians still struggle with sexual purity. So we need to go back to the cross again, again, and again. And claim the forgiveness that Jesus offers to anyone who asks for it.
then let us also seek to please God by repenting of sin and seeking to control our bodies so that we live to the glory of God. Amen? And I want each person here to know that our church wants to be a place where people are getting help through this. Whether it's through prayer, resources, accountability, this is a community-wide effort that we would all grow in sexual purity for the glory and honor of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us not, let us not hide in shame after what we have done, but know that there is grace and healing and forgiveness as the church comes together and we walk forward together to the cross and live in the newness of the power of the gospel. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your inspired word. We thank you that it always just speaks to our hearts. And God, we just pray that Your Spirit would help us to be doers of the Word from the things we have heard this morning. We want to please You, God. We want that to be our prime objective in life. Lord, we want to learn from the Apostle Paul how to encourage and exhort others in our lives. Forgive us for speaking harshly and judgmentally without encouraging, Lord. Make us wise in our words so that we glorify you and we're able to effectively exhort each other. And Lord, we've heard how you want us to please you with our sexual purity. Lord, we pray that your spirit would help us and guide us. We pray that we would come to you first for forgiveness where we have fallen short. And Lord, we would have a spirit of brokenness and contrition. Lord, we pray that we would claim your, your promises of forgiveness of all sin. Your word says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so we claim that promise this morning. We also pray, God, that we would not fall prey to somehow thinking we cannot have victory in this area. We pray that, God, you would give us your wisdom and your power to control our own bodies so that we experience the joy and the liberty that you desire for your people. We love you and we praise you. We thank you for this word here this morning. And God, we ask you to be glorified in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Amen.